Hi friends, Tierney here just popping in before the episode to let you know that we recorded this about a month ago. This episode was set to come out before we participated in the podcast Blackout and before we covered the cases of Darren Rainey and Daniel Shaver. We realized that the Black Lives Matter movement is a marathon, not a sprint, and we hope to continue to cover some of those cases as we also continue on with our regularly scheduled content. All right. Hope you guys enjoy. Hi, friends. I'm Tierney. And I'm Shelby. And we're Dead Dead Drunk. Drunk. Uh, hey guys, welcome back from our hashtag podcast blackout. Yeah, the world's not better, but <laughs> probably not. But um, we're back and we are here to talk about something that hopefully will distract you for a little bit from how awful I the mean, world is. It's not. <laughs> it's more awful it's not stuff. Better. <laughs> it's um, not like. Shout out to Finelli because she posted in our group chat the other day and said, an interesting experience I had. Me, I need a break from all this chaos. Me, turns on a true crime podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, girl, literally me. I'm like, I need need a distraction from like the fact that the world is falling apart. Let me read about murder and write about murder. That's what I did. That reminds me though. Finelli's one of our Patreon supporters, right? So who are the rest of our yes, patrons? Yes, we have three whole Patreon. At the time that we're recording this episode, there could be more um, in the weeks to come. But right now we have three Patreon supporters. We have good old John Keir. We have Finelli Valerio. And drumroll, please. Our good friend, Katie. Our our podcast pal, she is our patron, and we are so happy to have her on board. That means that I owe each of you a fun fact. (laughs) Guess what, John? Not you, John. The (laughs) other one. The one that pays us. The one that pays us for shit. (laughs) John, did you know in Switzerland, it is illegal to own just one guinea pig? You have to have at least two guinea pigs in Switzerland. Yeah. Well, also, guinea pigs get really lonely, so that makes oh, sense. Oh, that's so sweet. Let's move to Switzerland. I bet they're not having all these problems. <laughs> they're probably having, like, some problems, but what country isn't? Their problems are probably like, oh, the supermarket was out of cheese. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's that's a pretty fucking big problem. Like, uh, I- <laughs> True. You should see the amount of cheese in my fridge. I'm always ready to pull out a cheese platter at any moment (laughs) you say the word (laughs) you have to be ready at some point you could wake up at like 3 p.m and go what do i want to eat oh cheese and you have to be ready with many different varieties of cheese yep i have pepper jack i have cheddar i have gouda i have brie i have american i have mozzarella i have uh american did i say american already i don't know i have it all Who's our next patron? Finelli? Finelli. Woo! Finelli, did you know that snakes can help predict earthquakes? They can sense a coming earthquake from 75 miles away up to five days before it happens. No way. (laughs) Yeah. Why don't we consult the snakes more for like our uh, earthquake knowledge? I don't know. I don't know. Um, hold on, Katie, I'm going to find you the best fact. I found one that may not be necessarily super interesting, but I feel like you'll enjoy it, Katie. Katie, did you know that chirophobia is an irrational fear of fun or happiness? (laughs) Katie would definitely enjoy that one. I wish she was here to react right now. An extra one that I found just for everybody's enjoyment is that 7% of American adults believe that chocolate milk comes from brown cows. How <laughs> now, brown cow. <laughs> um, so when you think, how can that person be that stupid? Think about that fun fact. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, if you want more fun facts where that came from, subscribe to our Patreon, patreon.com slash dead drunk. On there, you will also find for $5, one episode a month of our series, Unlocking Israel Keys. And for $10 a month, you will also get another bonus episode about a true crime doc that has yet to be um, determined. And you'll get bloopers from us every week. And we have a lot. As well as exclusive voting power. So if you are a $10 patron and you want to request a case, we will do it immediately. We'll do it. We'll do it. You vote for it. You tell us what it is. We'll do it. All right. Enough of the chitter chatter. As you have seen from the title, we are talking about Lauren Spear today. If you do listen to Crime Junkie, they did this for their 100th episode because it is such a famous case in Indiana where they are from. We start decided to do this case because on Crime Junkie, they theorized that it might have to do with Israel Keys. We don't think so, and we'll get into why we don't think so later on in the episode, but we thought that it would be a good opportunity for us to cover a missing persons case as well as relate it to our last episode of Israel Keys and our Patreon, Unlocking Israel Keys. Subscribe now, patreon.com slash dead drunk. Anyway, so for our drink this week, a bar that is in the episode a lot is Kilroy Sports Bar in Bloomington, Indiana. And so I went to the Kilroy's Bar website and I found that on Thursday nights, which is the night that Lauren was at Kilroy's, they have a special of $4 signature shooters. So I looked at all of the signature shooters they have and let me tell you, they have like a million signature shooters. Um, And I found one that... Number one, I had all the ingredients for. And number two, I think sounds delicious. And it's called the fuzzy cran apple. <laughs> so what you're going to do is take some peach schnapps, apple pucker, orange juice, and cranberry juice, shake it up, and shoot it. And that's it. Wow. A fuzzy cran apple. Doesn't that sound like fun? Yeah. Was like, it- I'm guessing it's fuzzy because of the peach and mm-hmm. then the crayon and the apple. I don't know where the OJ comes in, but like it's there. <laughs> um, but yeah, that sounds delicious to me. And so that's what we're drinking. So are you ready for the case? Drink up, dead drunkies. Woo. All right. Lauren Spear was a 20-year-old college student at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. She was a vivacious young girl who actually moved from her home in Scarsdale, New York, to Bloomington to study fashion merchandising. June 2nd, 2011 was a Thursday, and like most girls her age, Lauren was getting ready to go out for the night with her friends. Hashtag Thirsty Thursday, am I right? Yup. (laughs) Lauren put on a white tank top and a white shirt and paired it with black leggings, and she looked super cute. I do have to say, 10 out of 10 would recommend. (laughs) Before I go any further, I just want to address that this story has a lot of players involved. I'm going to try my best to make this as concise as possible because basically there are just a lot of white guys that look the same and have similar names. (laughs) The first of which is David Roan. Lauren met up with Roan, another IU student who was also from New York, though I do not believe that they knew each other before college. Rowan lived in Lauren's building, so it was normal for the two to walk together to parties. They lived at Smallwood Plaza, which was a very affluent complex near Indiana University. The party that they went to was at Five North Townhomes, another very nice apartment complex. Of course, I mapped it. And it would have taken them just five minutes to walk to the party from where they were. So it was a very, very short walk. The two arrived together but didn't stay together that night, seeing as they both had different friends at the party. I think that they would just kind of walk together to parties there a lot because they both lived in the same building. Roan's attorney confirmed that Roan actually left the party earlier than Lauren, which is also corroborated by the video surveillance showing him returning home at 12.30 a.m. and not leaving until the next day at about 11 a.m., So whatever happened that night, Roan probably was not involved because he went home early. Cough, loser, cough. (laughs) 
<laughs> he probably wasn't involved because he wanted to go to sleep. Uh, and the moral of the story here is if you want to sleep, go home and go to sleep. It <laughs> it does remind me of um I know a lot of people don't like how I met your mother and I don't know why because I love how I met your mother. Um but the how I met your mother line, nothing good happens after 2 a.m. Mm. Very true in this case. Oh, it's true in most cases, I found. Yeah. Although nothing, if nothing I, good happens after 2 a.m. If I am defending haters of How I Met Your Mother, that ending sucked. Oh, that ending was fucking horrible. I hated it. Right. But so that ending makes the whole show, like, not worth it. So, at 1.46 a.m., video surveillance shows Lauren entering Kilroy's sports bar, which the students all refer to as sports. Lauren used a fake ID to get into the bar and stayed for less than an hour. Sports, because of its location near all the nice apartment buildings, like the one Lauren lived in, was known as a bar that many of the, quote, well-to-do kids from the East Coast frequented. So Lauren was right at home at Kilroy's. At 2.27 a.m., Lauren leaves sports without her phone and without her shoes. What? The shoes thing, yeah. The shoes thing did seem a little weird to me at first, too, but sports has an outdoor patio that's covered with sand. So it was normal for people to take their shoes off when they went out on the patio, especially but, if they were wearing like some kind of sandals or flip flops. But she left her phone. Yeah. So it does tell us that Lauren was probably very intoxicated at this point because she lost her phone and her shoes in a matter of 50 minutes. That's so, crazy talk. Yeah. So obviously whatever she was doing at the party whether it was just drinking or if there were drugs involved, which we don't know. Um, she was obviously very inebriated by the time she got to the bar and especially by the time she left without her phone or her shoes because you don't, you don't do that. It should just, I mean, I've definitely left my phone in, a, in bathrooms, but I've never mm. left an establishment without my phone. I've, Neither you do, have I, but you I do. You do a pat down. Like, do I have everything? Neither have I, but I do know. I actually, you know what? I have left my phone at Mahoney's before, because I put it on the charger behind the bar, and then I just forgot. That makes sense. And then I'd go back the next day to get it. Which, yep. I mean, so it could. Ha I can see it happening because I've done it before. Um, I don't think that was exactly the case for her. I think she just got drunk and dropped it, and I, I'm not sure. Anywho. Lauren, now shoeless, is seen walking back to where she lives at Smallwood, which is about a three-minute walk from sports. Lauren is seen walking back to Smallwood with a boy named Corey Rossman. Rossman is from Boston, and he lives at Five North, the building where the party that Lauren attended earlier in the evening was held. He's from Boston. He's from Boston. <laughs> I'm really bad at that accent. I can only do it if I'm saying ka. The only thing I can do is if I'm like, I'm Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> if I park my car in the I'm car. I'm Mark Wahlberg. Park my car. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so I'm assuming that Rossman was with Lauren the whole time, like going to the bar and at the bar and then leaving because he did. He was probably at the party earlier that night. But as we'll see in this case, the police have not released a lot of information at all. They've literally released one still from a security camera of Lauren, just of her walking to show what she was wearing. And that was it. Are you serious? But it's been yeah. like nine years. Yeah. But that's all they've released. So um, I'm not sure of what the security cameras show. And they haven't released like for a while. They called him like mystery man. But it was Corey Rossman. Sorry. Sorry, Rossman. It was you. <laughs> so I'm assuming that he was with her the whole time. But that hasn't been released. Okay. Lauren actually had only known Rossman for a few days prior to this night when the two had hung out at the Indy 500 sports. Woo! Side note, is NASCAR a sport? Um, I don't want to say it's not hard because I'm sure it's really hard to drive really fast. But also, does it take a lot of physical prowess? Yeah, no. um, Adam was talking to me the other day about how his, because um, he is a sports management major, mm -hmm. and, or was, I guess, I don't know, 
But he told me like what the definition of sports was. And it was like physical something that you have to achieve a goal or something, which I guess it's technically physical, but like, is it, I mean, I, I wouldn't really call it physical. I, I think that all of the cars that you drive in NASCAR, you have to shift. So there's like more than regular driving. You have to move, but like, right. But do you have to be physically fit to do it? Well, no, no, Probably not. So I don't know. But anyway, Lauren and Rossman are seen arriving back at Smallwood where Lauren lives at 2.30 a.m. They take the elevator to the fifth floor where her apartment is. But before they can get inside, an unknown person punches Rossman in the face. What? Yeah. From what I've read, it was a pretty bad punch that could have left Rossman concussed. And at 2.42 a.m., the two are seen leaving Smallwood headed for 5 North, where Rossman lives instead. Whatever happened inside has not completely been released by police, but spoiler, a lot of the case hasn't, as I said. And Rossman says he can't even remember who the fight was with or what it was about. What I have been able to piece together is that the altercation happened with a passerby who lived in the building named Zachary Oaks. I didn't find a lot about who Oaks is, but the gist is that he noticed how intoxicated Lauren was and asked if she was okay. Rossman reportedly responded to Oaks by cursing at him, which ended in Oaks knocking his lights out, basically. That sounds plausible. Yeah. I do feel like when men are drunk and they're with a girl, they take a protective stance. So when a man questions how safe that girl is, they're like, fuck you, man. And then. Right. Exactly. Rossman claims that this punch caused him to lose a lot of memory from the evening, which could be true. But also, I honestly think is very convenient to be true. I think because of what's going to happen. I mean, I'm not going to say that because I don't know if he's lying, but I would guess that more likely is that he probably browned out faster. Mm-hmm. You know, like he probably remembers browned out. Me too. <laughs> it should also be noted that Lauren did not even go into her apartment to get another pair of shoes. She's still shoeless at this time. They were literally on the floor of her apartment. Um, Robert Spearer, Lauren's father, says he still would like to know why Rossman didn't bring Lauren back to her apartment. Because whatever altercation happened, they were on her floor. Why did she not go home? I mean, I I would also ask that question if I was a parent. But if he's drunk and then he gets punched in the face, it's even more likely that he just forgot why they were there. You know what I mean? Yeah, but also, like, why did she not just go home? Oh, I She's don't on know her that. Floor. Why could she not just go into her apartment and be safe I, for the night? I don't understand that because if I was on my floor and somebody that escorted me home got punched in the face, I would just leave them and go into my apartment. I'm sorry, yeah. anybody that escorts me home, but, like... No, this is somebody she's known for a matter of days also. But I love going home. I, it's my favorite thing to do is go home. So, like... Yeah, same. <laughs> Same. I love not even leaving my house. I love just getting drunk in my house. I know. And not leaving. There are more reports of Lauren being extremely inebriated from witnesses on the street that night. One witness describes Lauren sitting on a staircase and falling backwards, hitting her head very hard on the concrete steps. And they literally like heard her head hit the steps. The witness stopped to ask if she was okay. But Rossman again claimed that he had it under control After falling approximately three more times on the way back to Five North, which should have been a five-minute walk, as we discussed earlier, Rossman ended up picking Lauren up, throwing her over his shoulder, and carrying her most of the way. Um, There was a bar manager that said that they witnessed this around 3.38 a.m., even though it was way before then, which did confuse police for a while because they kind of thought that she, like, went back out. Mm -hmm. But the bar just had the wrong timeline. Is it how how later bars open in Indiana? Is it four? I think it's four because that's in New Paltz. They're four. A lot of other places there too. But the fact that these people are out this late, I would assume that they're four. There are some whole states that close at two. Yeah, I know. Like there are. I know the city of Beacon near us closes at two, which I think now in my old age is awesome. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
At 2.51, Lauren Spear is seen on video surveillance for the last time, walking into an empty lot near 5 North. Lauren's purse and keys were later found along this route. She then ends up in the apartment of Rossman and his roommate, Mike Beth. According to Beth, he had stayed home that night studying <coughs> loser, <clears throat> and was greeted by a very intoxicated Rossman and Spearer. This next part has some conflicting reports online. According to Indianapolis Monthly, a source I used a lot while writing up this case, Beth claims that he helped Rossman up to his bed and like vomited on the way up the stairs like he was very, very drunk. And then when he got back downstairs, Lauren was gone. However, in many other sources, it said that Mike Beth comes back downstairs and tries to persuade Lauren to sleep it off on their couch. In this scenario, Lauren refuses and instead tries to convince Beth to come back to her apartment with her and drink more. Beth then called his neighbor Jason Rosenbaum, or Jay as his friends called him, to see if he could help take care of her that night. Rosenbaum was the one who hosted the party earlier that night, and Lauren reportedly leaves Beth and Rossman's apartment and heads for Rosenbaum's. The apartments are just two doors apart. It's very close. Oh. Okay. Okay. Sorry. But the... So, Beth calls Rosenbaum to take Lauren. Yes. Um, okay. Because they're both friends with her, and... Again, it's like it's literally like I know my our listeners won't like super know what this is, but like it would literally be like me walking from my apartment to Will's apartment in Poughkeepsie when we both lived there. Oh, okay, that was only a few doors down, guys. Like it's yeah, just- no, it was literally two doors down. Mm-hmm. It was not like a far place for her to walk. So yeah, so the conflicting stories are him saying that Lauren was gone and him saying he called someone to come get Lauren. Or called somebody and was like, can Lauren come to your place? Right. But either way, Lauren reportedly leaves Beth and Rossman's apartment and heads for Rosenbaum's two doors down. Lauren arrives at Rosenbaum's apartment and Rosenbaum reports that he observes a bruise on Lauren's face. Lauren doesn't remember what happened or how she got the bruise, but it is accepted widely online that it probably was the result of one of her many falls on the sidewalk earlier that night because she was falling literally everywhere before Corey Rossman picked her up. Lauren then makes two calls from Rosenbaum's phone since hers is missing. One is to David Roan, the boy who accompanied her to the party much earlier that night, but he doesn't answer. The other is to another one of her male friends, but he doesn't answer either, and no messages are left, so we're not really sure what she was trying to say to them. I, if I had to guess, I would guess she was trying to get somebody to come get her. Right, and she didn't because have her I would, phone, so it was right. like, these so people, I would also call male friends. That live, I mean, she knows Roan lives in her apartment. I don't, we're, we're not sure who the other male friend is, but he might have lived in her apartment complex also and was trying to get them to come get her. But still, I would even call like other, like male friends that didn't live in my apartment and be like, hey, can you come here and walk me to my apartment and then sleep in my apartment because I just can't walk home by myself. Right. Rosenbaum says the last time he sees Lauren is 4.30 a.m. when she leaves to walk back to her own apartment. He claims to have watched her walk down the sidewalk, turning south on College Ave in the direction of Smallwood Apartments. This makes him the last person to see Lauren Spearer. That's not enough. That's not enough. I, 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 I understand that you shouldn't get so drunk that you cannot be in control of yourself. But in the event that you are... And you are a male, friend of a female. You should escort that female literally anywhere. Yeah. Just please. Yeah. Please. And we'll get into why this is a little more problematic even later. Um, But I have seen some theories that are like Jay Rosenbaum is innocent because why would he make up a story where he was the last person to see her? I I understand that. Which I kind of understand, but I'm also not that quick to clear him of any wrongdoing in this situation. No, you can't be. I mean, somebody whose alibi ends with going, and I was the last person to see her. Yeah, exactly. That's like kind of, yeah, that's questionable. But also, it's just, 
I agree with this if you're a female and your female friend wants to go home. You should always travel in in pairs at least. Right. And we've I mean we've said before on the podcast like don't go anywhere alone, which I don't know where any of Lauren's like girlfriends were this night because it, the police don't at least don't talk about any of them. They talk about her roommate a little bit, but um she was home like I don't I don't know where any of her girlfriends were, which is kind of sad. It's like you you're supposed to be protecting each other almost. Do you know what I mean? Right. I don't know where they were. You should at the very least be protecting your girlfriends. At around 4.35 a.m., just about five minutes after Lauren leaves Rosenbaum's apartment, a homeless man in the area reports hearing a woman scream just west of where Lauren was last seen. This man is believed to have been a man named Franklin Road Dog Crawford, who actually died just days after Lauren's disappearance. My gosh. Which is very interesting. But do you think that was just his purpose? His only purpose was to hear that scream? Or, I mean, I'm not sure if the scream is even, like, validated. Do you know what I mean? Like, he said he heard the scream, but he's a homeless man on the street, probably with some mental illness. Maybe he just wanted to be part of the story. Was, again, I don't think that any homeless person would willingly come to the police unless they actually had something. Yeah, I'm not. Again, I'm not really sure, and we'll never really be sure because he's now deceased. But that was just a small part of the story. So the next morning, Lauren's boyfriend Jesse Wolf tried to text Lauren. Where where was he the whole night? So an employee from Sports texted him back saying that she had left her phone there. Wolford reportedly stayed in the night before, which is why he wasn't a part of the narrative until now, which I think is a little bit weird because there were so many boys around. Like, yeah. uh, maybe, maybe, I mean, maybe, <laughs> maybe their relationship wasn't going so well and that's why she had been hanging out with Corey and all those other people, which like could definitely be true. I'm not really sure. Um, but we know that she wasn't hanging out with Jesse Wolf the night that she disappeared. Mm-hmm. According to Lawrence roommate Hadar Tamir, Wolf met Tamir on campus that day to get a key and then went back to their apartment to look for Lauren. So he's the one that reported her missing and he's the one who went to look for her. So in my opinion, he probably was not involved in her disappearance. Okay. No, that makes yeah. sense. She obviously... If you were involved, you wouldn't put that much effort into right. finding Right. You her. wouldn't be the one to report her missing if you were involved. I mean, so, I right. mean, some people might if they were like really fucked up, but I don't know. She obviously wasn't there at the apartment. And at 4.30 that afternoon, Wolf is the one to report her missing. So the question is, where is Lauren Spear? There are many theories on what could have happened to Lauren... And I'm going to start with a couple different cases that are eerily similar to that of Lauren Spear. The first of this is Jill Berman. On May 31st of 2000, almost 11 years to the day before Lauren Spear's disappearance, Jill Berman was on a bike when she went missing. She had logged out of her computer at 9.32 a.m., but did not show up to her 12 to 3 work shift at the student rec center at IU or for a lunch day that she had planned with her dad and her grandparents. On June 2nd, her bike was recovered on a road about 10.5 miles from her home, but there was no Jill. The search for Jill began with a $25,000 reward that ended up being raised to $100,000 as the search continued with no luck. I'm guessing from community involvement and people donating. In April 2001, a woman named Wendy Owings came forward and said that she was in a car with another woman that was being driven by a man named Uriah J. Klaus when they struck Jill Berman on her bike. Owings told police that Klaus then got out of the car, stabbed Berman in the chest, and wrapped her body in plastic wrap and bungee cords, and then threw her in the river. What? Yeah, which is a crazy claim to make. That's like an insane story, right? That's, I mean, it's crazy. It's, 
I can't. So Klaus was actually in jail at the time that Owings came forward. And Klaus has an extensive criminal background, including the assault on a gay man just because he was gay and the rape of various women, including a 14 year old girl. Oh, my God. So this is a terrible person that absolutely could have done what she's saying. He denied any involvement, though. And Owings then recanted her statement, saying that that didn't actually happen. And nobody ended up being charged. Oh, my God. I actually found Klaus on Facebook and stalked him pretty hard. He posted in 2018, quote, I have been ostracized because I wouldn't exclude one of them. I've been excluded from most of my life from most of my own doing. But God knows I what I haven't done last four year and a half years. I was homeless. Both my parents have died, and now none of my brothers won't have anything to do with me because I would. Not excluded. I am sober only by God's grace alone. End quote. That was the most chaotic quote I've ever heard in my life. What the hell did any of that actually say in English? Right. That was so crazy. (laughs) I know. It does seem like he has tried to turn his life around since his time in jail. Looking at his Facebook, you can tell that he's not very well educated, especially from that quote. And he may have some mental disabilities. Like, you know how you can just, like, look at somebody's profile and, like, tell that they maybe not be all there. Um, I feel really bad now. I'm so sorry. I just... No, it's fine. I I mean, that quote was just so... What do you mean? Mm Mm-hmm. And I, I imagine many people comment, what do you mean? But no. And there I, I literally scrolled through his whole Facebook and there. I mean, there are many like not very well worded posts. There's a lot of pictures of him where you can just like you look at them and you can tell that there's something off about the person. Do you know what so, I mean? Yeah. So he's out, though. He's he's, he's out. not in jail. No, he's not in jail anymore. Um and he's not suspected of this no, disappearance. No, despite his past, he was n- he was not involved in the Jill Berman case, and he's not a suspect for Lauren's case either. Um, he just seems like kind of a troubled human. Like, I mean, just looking at his his Facebook profile, I I feel almost bad. But like, he was a suspect for a short amount of time in Jill Berman's case, but it was determined by the police that he was not involved. It was just because, was what was it, Wendy owing? Yes, because somebody came forward and, and said that he was involved. But And he, I mean, he did have a criminal background, but it seems like it might have been due to drinking because he talks about being sober on his Facebook. Right. Um, so that I think have, that he's since... It might have exacerbated the mental illness. He might right, just exactly. be mentally ill and the drinking didn't help. Contributed, yeah. On March 9th, 2003, nearly three years after Jill Berman disappeared, a hunter found human bones in the woods near Worthen and Duckworth Rose in Morgan County, Indiana. They were later determined to be the bones of Jill Berman. None of her clothes were found, nor were any signs of blunt force trauma. The police did, however, find wadding and pellets consistent with a 12-gauge shotgun shell. An autopsy determined that Jill Berman's cause of death was a shot to the back of the head. A man named John Myers, who was on police radar since Jill went missing, started to look like a better suspect to police. He lived very close to where her bike was found and had access to a white van, which had been reportedly in the area during the time of her disappearance. He was interviewed in 2000, as were his parents, but nothing came of it then. In 2001, though, he called the FBI saying that he had found a bone and a pair of women's underwear in a tree near where he was fishing. Very uh, fishy, no pun intended. Wait, a pair, like a a bone in a tree? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, which is why I said very fishy, <laughs> <laughs> no pun intended, LOL. He thought that they, quote, might be helpful in the Berman case. Then in 2002, Myers was in jail for an unrelated charge when he told a guard that he might have found the clues to the Berman case written on food trays in the cafeteria. 
Myers ended up also giving police a list of locations that could possibly be involved in her disappearance, including gravel pits, which was just very interesting because that's not where she was found. Okay, so if a convicted criminal just keeps talking about one specific missing persons case, maybe you should ask him about that specific case. Yeah, I mean, we've seen before... Where people are fixated, like some criminals, when they murder somebody, they like keep returning to the crime scene or they stay fixated on a crime that they committed because they want people to find them. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the vibe I got from from John Myers. I mean, this is just the craziest shit. Yeah. I mean, he's already in jail and he's going, hey, do you remember that Berman girl? What? Why would you bring that up at all? Exactly. It was later concluded by investigators that Myers became angered when his girlfriend broke up with him and in his rage shot Jill Berman. In 2006, he was arrested, charged, and sentenced to 65 years in prison. What does your girlfriend breaking up with you have to do with Jill Berman? I mean, if you're mentally ill and you're angry and you see a girl riding down the street maybe she looked like her maybe she didn't but you see just a random girl on her bike you might you might cheer just out of anger i don't know because i'm not mentally I guess ill and i'm not it's just, fucking it doesn't none of it makes sense but i mean it kind of does because of the mentally ill portion it's just the the execution style shooting makes it feel like something it's not you know, like, and I'm sure police felt this, too, where they felt like this was personal. It's to the back of the head. It's probably in close range because it's to the back of the head. Right. So, but if you're I mean, if you're if you're driving down the road and you see a girl on her bike driving down the road, you could shoot her out of your car even. I guess. But it, at that point, and I'm not mentally ill and I'm not going to do this. But like if I was driving a car and somebody was riding a bike, you just use the car. Right. Like. Yeah, I mean, that. yeah, that makes sense. I'm not, I mean, again, I'm not really sure what happened because Myers has tried to keep his innocence throughout this time, but. Oh, has he? Because, I mean, kind of obsessing yeah. about something, oh, bro. Oh, no, I know. <laughs> it It seems completely realistic that he did it. Um, Jill Berman's case, although somewhat similar to Lauren's, is obviously not connected because of the fact that Myers was in jail when Lauren went missing. However... I thought it was important to bring to light Jill's case because of a recent development. John Myers is set to be released from jail on June 15th, 2020. Well, why? My- Myers is waiting on an appeal because he believes that he had an ineffective assistance of counsel back when he was tried. He's being released because of a medication that he is on that weakens his immune system, and that makes him more susceptible to the COVID-19 virus. No. Yep. He will no. be released. Yep. No, absolutely released no. No. <laughs> I'm just, no. It's not okay. It he doesn't. Will be rele- <laughs> it doesn't matter. You, you are a murderer, and it doesn't matter what medication you're on and how susceptible you are to COVID-19. You killed a person. You killed a person. However, despite that fact, he will be released and placed on house arrest until the results of the appeal are released. Oh, house arrest? That's going to do a great job. What? Are you kidding me? Oh, my God. I just don't. I mean, there's there's actually a mother actively protesting for her son to get out of jail in Canada because he's immunocompromised. But he's a murderer, so Canada's going, huh, fuck no. Are you, oh, so why would a... Never mind. I'm not going to question America, because obviously America go, hey, what? Do you kill a guy? <laughs> Do it again. Yeah, no, it's, it's absolutely insane. Brian Berman, Jill's brother, writes on his Facebook page, quote, I just got off the phone with my mom. She shared with me that Judge James R. Sweeney II of the U.S. District Court issued a ruling based on a recent appeal. In his ruling, Myers will be released after a quarantine of jail for 14 days. This appeal is based on the fact that Myers received inappropriate counsel on his trial in 2006. 
The lawyer, Patrick Baker, is still practicing law in Indiana. Okay. He was censured by the state bar as a result of his work in Jill's case. How does he still get to practice in this state? But the most upsetting part, because of the way our system works. Nobody from our family was able to speak for Jill. I'm not going to lie. This case was circumstantial. There was no DNA. There was no murder weapon. But there was a wide variety of evidence that led a jury of 12 peers to find Myers guilty. Once again, our system silences victims. It silences those who care for those who are lost. My sister didn't get to be present for my wedding. My children will never know their Aunt Jill's voice or her laugh. And the system doesn't allow anyone to speak for her at this time. I write this from a place of anger and hurt. I just had the biggest cry I've ever had in a long time. And I hugged my kids in a way that they couldn't understand. I've said it before and I'll say it again. There are many things I love about the life I have in the place I live. But time and again, I have seen victims tr be treated as less than. It sucks. And Jill doesn't have a voice anymore, but I can be a voice for her. That's so sweet. It literally brought tears to my eyes. That's so sweet. Hi, guys. Tierney popping in again because between the time we recorded this and now there has been an update, Myers actually was not released because Indiana State Prison Warden Ron Neal challenged the order on June 5th. He argued that convicted murderers should stay in jail despite their susceptibility to the COVID-19 virus. So Myers is still in jail. OK, back to the episode. So as I said, Jill's case, although similar to Lawrence, is not connected. However, there is another case that happened after Lawrence that is even more similar. In April of 2015, Hannah Wilson, a bright 22-year-old girl, had just finished her final exam at Indiana University before graduation. She had a job lined up and plans to attend grad school. To celebrate, Wilson went out with her sorority sisters, who last saw her leaving Kilroy Sports Bar the night of April 23rd, 2015. Again, the same bar that Lauren went missing from. Mm -hmm. When they got home, they noticed that her door to her room was wide open, and her purse and cell phone were lying on her bed that was still made. She had never gotten into bed that night to go to sleep. Unlike Lauren Spear, however, the body of Hannah Wilson was found just hours after her disappearance in a grassy, vacant lot about 10 miles away from the IU campus. Wilson's killer, though, had made a huge mistake. At Wilson's feet, police found the cell phone of 50-year-old Daniel Messel. When police arrived at Messel's house, they literally caught him red-handed as he was carrying a bag of bloody clothes into his home. They also found blood in his car, which was a Kia Sportage. My mouth literally dropped open. Are you kidding me? Yeah. This guy made a lot of mistakes. So could Daniel Messel be involved with Lauren's disappearance? Maybe. But myself looking at the crimes, the only real similarity is that these girls went missing after going to the same bar. Whatever happened to Lauren is very well hidden. And I doubt that Daniel Messel could have done something to Lauren and disguised it so well when he made so many mistakes in the murder of Hannah Wilson. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Somebody that that literally makes a girl vanish out of thin air could not possibly murder somebody and make so many mistakes that he was found so easily. I agree that it's strange that Somebody could make that many mistakes just, what is it, four years after the, the vanishing of another girl? Uh, 2011 and 2000. Yeah, so four, yeah, four years. Yeah. So, but there's no way that, like, and people sometimes say, like, well, maybe Lauren was much drunker than Hannah and that's why it was easier to, to disguise it. But, I mean, this guy, Daniel Messel, 
must have been like the unluckiest person ever that he literally was bringing the bloody clothes into his house as police arrived. Right. Like he was I mean, caught he red-handed. Left, he left his actual cell phone there. I mean, that was a huge mistake. Yeah, exactly. Like we were just talking about how easily you can find who somebody's cell phone is. Mm-hmm. You leave your cell phone at the foot of a girl that you murdered. Like that's so stupid. And if he was that stupid, he would have left Lauren's body somewhere and people could find it, I assume. Mm-hmm. And we still don't know. Yeah. We still haven't found her, right? Right. So, I doubt that Daniel Messel could have done something to Lauren. So, what happened to Lauren Spearer? Again, I'm sorry I took you on this like wild goose chase so far <laughs> without anything that makes sense. Investigators also said in 2012 that they were looking into the possibility that Lauren could be a victim of William Clyde Gibson III, a serial killer that is now on death row in Indiana, who was active during the time of Lauren's murder. He pled guilty to the murders of three women, Christine Wittes, Stephanie Kirk, and Karen Hadella. However... All three women were found buried in his backyard. If he was responsible for whatever happened to Lawrence Spearer, I bet she would be there too. Yeah, it sounds like he was kind of a Kendall Francois where he took the women and then he killed them in his house and after he did whatever and then he buried them. Right. He's a very scary man, but I think that if he would have done anything to Lawrence, she would have ended up just like the other victims that he had, it wouldn't be a separate thing. Is this the serial killer that everybody's referring to when they say that she may have been the victim to an Indiana serial killer? Because I've seen a lot of theories that say, that suggest that there is a serial killer still, I mean, I don't know when it was written, but maybe uncaught in Indiana? I don't know. The, one of the reasons we covered this case, Dead Drunkies, is because some people do say that it might have been Israel Keys. Um, but this other serial killer was also in play. So this could have been. I honestly think that this guy is more of a possibility than Israel Keys was. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But. I don't know. I feel like if all of if his three victims that he pled guilty for were all in his backyard, wouldn't he have put Lauren in his backyard also? Yeah. It I mean, it sounds like this guy had a very specific MO and that was to kidnap people, take them back to his house, kill them there, and bury them there. Right, exactly. So here's another thing that I have not talked about yet, but I think is very important to this case. A tweet that has since been deleted suggests that maybe there were more people around the night of her murder. An internet sleuth found a post that basically hints that Jason J. Rosenbaum had visitors from Michigan staying in his apartment that night. I don't know what the tweet exactly said because it was deleted, but the fact that this post was deleted after being brought to light is suspicious to me. Rosenbaum's attorney told Indianapolis Monthly there were other people around and I believe the police have all of their names and information. A theory that is widely accepted online is that Lauren got too drunk that night and was possibly using drugs as well. Most people think that it was a variety of things that could have happened and the two most likely to me are that number one, Lauren overdosed And the boys that were around didn't want to get in trouble for it, so they covered it up. The second is that Lauren was very inebriated and the boys gang raped her, accidentally killing her in the process and then covered it up also so that they wouldn't get in trouble. Which, honestly, knowing college boys, I feel like both of those things could have happened. Especially if they were the ones that gave her the drugs that that ended up killing her. I had also read that she had a pre-existing heart condition and did Klonopin as well as cocaine that night. It's just speculation because, again, I wasn't there. I don't know. And as far as I know, it wasn't in any police reports. But it wasn't It wasn't in a bunch of police reports, but 
I mean, Lauren Spear was 4'11". She was a very small girl. So a lot of alcohol and drugs like would obviously affect her. She did have a pre-existing heart condition. And it is speculated that she also did drugs. But obviously we didn't find her body. So we're not sure because we don't have like that kind of autopsy on her. Okay. Um, Clonopin is an anti-anxiety drug. I don't know what the association with that and cocaine would do. I imagine that it's a downer if it's an anti-anxiety yeah. and cocaine is an upper. And I just imagine that cocaine in and of itself is not good for any heart condition. Mm-mm. Again, um, I mean, cocaine makes your heart race like fucking... Right. Anything. So if you have any kind of heart condition at all, it's going to exacerbate it. And clonopin, any downer is not going to interact well with something that's making your heart go blue. Right. You know, mm-hmm. that was the wrong noise to make. But you know what I mean? <laughs> no, right? I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, a lot of interactions between drugs she took might have been what happened it might have been. But if she had had an overdose just by herself in the street, we would have found her. So something else had to have happened. Exactly. Her friends or quote unquote friends have to know something more than they do. Um, mm-hmm. So whatever it is that happened, I believe that the boys at Jay Rosenbaum's apartment that night know more than they are telling police. Lauren's parents and family are active on Facebook in keeping people updated with Lauren's case. Her mother writes, quote, no one escapes this life unscathed. Everyone has struggles and somehow we all survive, but it's not without costs. As every June 3rd approaches, I am faced with the dread of reliving all the horrific minutes of that day and the days which followed. I know now, of course, despite how desperately I wanted to believe that the words we will find her. It just wasn't meant to be. Our timeline has no end. So if you guys have any information on what happened to Lauren Spear, the tip line you can call is 812-339-4477. I think police at this point would honestly appreciate anything that you had to say if you know literally anything at all. Um, But again, it's been nine years. We did promise our listeners, our junkies, a very specific theory. And this is one, as far as I know, that is perpetuated by Crime Junkie. I don't know if it's Ashley or Britt. I think it was Britt, but I'm not sure. Somebody suggested that because at the time of Lauren's disappearance, Israel Keys was in the state of Indiana, it was Israel Keys. Hello, my name is Shelby, and I'm here to tell you that it wasn't Israel Keys. Yeah, I think a lot of people, when people go missing without a trace like Lauren Spear did, they're easy to be like, oh, was Israel Keys in the state or in the area? Okay, he took her because he was such an infamous person for taking people with no trace. That's fine. That's a very fair way to think because he told us that each one of his unsolved cases is a missing person except for one that's classified as an accidental death. So that's totally a fair way for you to think. Mm-hmm. However, you have to think that way and then look at the actual FBI timeline. And that's what I did in this case. So <laughs> this was brought up to me by my boyfriend, John, who said, hey, have you seen this? And I looked at this case and then I looked at the beautiful timeline that the FBI have laid out. And yes, at the time of her disappearance, he was in the state, but he was north in De Plains, renting a car. And then as soon as he rented that car, he got on Indiana toll roads heading to Essex, Vermont, as he was on his way to murder the couriers. Right. So De Plains is in Illinois. It's like right above the Chicago O'Hare airport, which I've been to before. And so it makes sense that he would rent a car there. Israel Keys was, again, on the way to murder other people that he had planned to murder. So it doesn't make sense that he would go south 
And then north again right. to Vermont. He was already on like a very long journey and it doesn't make sense that he would detour to murder Lauren Spear. Right. Again, not that he had picked out the couriers ahead of time. He just knew that he had a murder bucket, as I like to call them. Yep. He called them kill, kill caches. Cache. Yeah. He had a kill cache in Essex, Vermont, and he had planned to fly into Chicago and then drive to Essex, Vermont. And that's what he was doing at that time. It doesn't make sense to say that he sidetracked to Bloomington, a very populated city, to kidnap someone. He did not take people from populated cities as far as we know. Right. That was his main thing was like, I want to drive to somewhere where nobody is. Mm -hmm. There are going to be less opportunities, but at least there will be no witnesses. And he literally has said that in interviews before. As well as that, there are tolls that he took in his rental car on I-80 and I-90, which are in the north part of of Indiana. So there's no way that he could have gone all the way down and all the way back up without those tolls saying so. Right. And the toll transactions that we have from the FBI are from June 3rd, the morning that Lauren went missing. And it's it, it's not an answer to the case, but it is a definitive it was not Israel Keys. No. I can't give you an answer to who did it, but I can tell you who didn't. And it's Israel Keys. Sorry, crime junkie. You need to do your research. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, Ashley Flowers. I I regard you as one of the highest ranking officials in true crime podcasts, but this one, no, you're not right. It's no. not it's not him. He was in Indiana. But he didn't do this one. Again, we have no end to this timeline. As Lauren's mom said, we don't know who did it. I personally believe that Jay Rosenbaum knows more than he's telling police. It should be noted, though, that Jay Rosenbaum was one of the people that did cooperate. Mm -hmm. And he did talk to Lauren's parents after. And he kind of was like... I know this is stuff you probably don't want to hear about her being drunk and doing drugs, but like this is what happened and he was very cooperative. One person that was not cooperative was Corey Rossman. He kind of said like, you know, as long as you can say that you're not going to slander my name, I'll cooperate, but which I, which I understand, but no, he was I also more if, hesitant than the others. If you're a male and you're one of the last people to see a female alive, I I probably would have the same reaction that he has. But if I was to throw out a theory, I would guess it was your number one theory. That she probably did a little bit too much. I mean, she did have a pre-existing heart condition, right? So, I mean, right. you could easily do a little bit too much of any drug. Overdose. And if I was that, if I was that age, I would also freak out and probably cover it. I mean, I would probably call the police and report it, but I could understand attempting to cover it up. Especially if you're the person that gave her the drugs that killed her. Right. I could, I could totally get that that's what happened. Mm -hmm. That would make a lot of sense. To me, it doesn't make sense. I mean... The gang rape to me doesn't fit as much as the other one does. I'm not saying it's impossible. It is. It's horrible. It's way worse, I think. But like. Possible. I don't know. I but, think that one just makes sense to me because of the amount of people. Oh, it makes sense because of the amount of men. And the fact that with, they deleted the post that said that those people were there. Yes, then that fits. I but think I that's think that very also, suspicious. I think, I think that it would that, also fit in the cover-up for her overdosing, though. Those people would not want to be associated with being in that area, so you could just delete the post saying that they were there. Right, exactly. And so again, it would like, kind of fit both theories. Yeah. And again, Lauren was such like a small girl, and could I guess if she was that drunk, could easily be overpowered by these boys who, again, I just, I think that they know more than they're telling police. And I think it's really messed up that they're not going to give people justice, but they're I trying agree, to protect themselves. That's, that's why I, 
I do and I don't understand in the way that if it was scenario number one where she overdosed and you're covering it up, you just made something that was bad a million times worse. Oh, yeah. And if it's scenario number two, it's already a million times worse. And you can't ever you can't ever admit to that. That's horrible. Yeah, I just wish that something had happened. They could at least I do wish that there's family. Right. I do wish that there was an answer for the family. I 100 percent agree. It's been so long and they're still so hopeful that they're going to find justice for her. And if Jay Rosenbaum and all of his friends that were visiting from Michigan are the ones that know what happened and they're not willing to come forward, then we might never know. Right. And we we probably won't. Unless they have a change of heart on their deathbed. Yeah. And that's a shame. But we can for sure say it. at least she wasn't a victim of serial killer Israel Keys. Yeah, I don't think so at all. If you want to tell us what you thought of this case or suggest new cases for us, you can email us at deaddrunkpod at gmail.com. If you want to share your shooters, you can do so on Instagram at deaddrunkcrime. Or on Twitter, which is a great platform that fact checks now at deaddrunkcrime. You can follow us on our Facebook page for videos or Snapchats of our... Not Snapchats. What is it? The little screen share snippets of our audio. Whatever it's called on the I don't know. (laughs) I don't have an iPhone, you guys. It's that thing. But like... (laughs) (laughs) But our Facebook page is Dead Drunk and True Crime Podcast. There. That's where I was getting. (laughs) If you want to read more about this case and dive deeper into our sources, you can on our website at drunkpodcast.com where we have in-depth blog posts that include drink recipes and full written out scripts and research from our episodes yeah and you can also find links to our merch store we have merch you guys we do have merch hopefully we'll be uploading some new designs soon we will let you know when that happens and that's very exciting yes And that's it, right? That's all we got? Yes, that's... I think that's it. (laughs) Bye, Mom. (laughs) Bye.